while we wait for a, a few people, or are we going to wait for a few people? Or? We're going to give it a few moments. I think uh, I want to, what we'll do is we'll, let me do the, because uh, I'm recording. So uh, I'll do the intro and then we'll do a little bit of a Q&A before we dive into this section, because I think, and then this is just my opinion, it's worth us going a little bit over the prayer syntheses. Uh, and kind of leading up to this a little bit before we start the reading, so we can give that a moment as people uh, come in, if that sounds good to everyone. Uh, so, uh, thank all of you for joining us today at the uh, Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective. We are in our ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus. We're moving into Chapter uh, 2.5, The Conjunctive Synthesis of Consumption Consummation. Before we get into the literal read itself, I wanted to take a second and open up for everyone and see if there's any questions leading into this. Uh, I know I'm sure a few of you have already read uh, and prepped for this. Uh, if you have questions before we dive in, because it's, I think, worthwhile um, for us to just spend a moment having this conversation before we dive into what I think is probably one of the more revolutionary parts of the book, which is how uh, we are made. It's where do babies come from kind of moment. So... It's worth a, worth a second. So if anyone has a comment or a question, I'd love to hear it. So uh, as a bit of a summary before we dive into uh, 2.5, uh, at this point we've been discussing how desiring machines work. Desiring machines being the sort of base reality for how uh, the unconscious effectively works, uh, how uh, really the world works at a base level. Uh, the the whole thing operates in what is called an imminent plane. It happens essentially concurrently, but there are steps to it and a process to the entire thing. The first being that of connection, uh, the first synthesis, the connective synthesis, where uh, desiring machines connect partial objects. Uh, the partial objects being uh, mouth to breast, finger to keyboard, uh, eye to screen, uh, things that don't necessarily have any meaning at a larger level unto themselves. As we move to the next step of that, it is the disconnection, uh, the disjunctive synthesis, which literally means non-connection, uh, where the, the desiring machines become disconnected. In this process, there's a handful of things that are sort of thrown off during the effort. And a little bit of that is a small smidgen of the energy uh, goes out to creating uh, the uh, a signifying signs on the body without organs and creating the body without organs itself. Uh, this process uh, in the two steps kind of is consistently going back unto itself. And then you have the final step, which is this, which is the conjunctive synthesis. This is how all of those desiring machines get uh, put together, uh, the conjunctive synthesis, all of it coming together into one larger thing or one larger thing when the, the consumption of the energy as they may say, or the consummation. Uh, I think we'll go ahead and uh, dive in. It's a slightly smaller group today, which happens, no big deal. Um, but we will uh, continue reading. So let me dive in, unless there's okay, anything first. In. Uh, in the third synthesis, the conjunctive synthesis of consumption, we have seen how the body without organs was in fact an egg, crisscrossed with axes, banded with zones, localized with areas and fields, measured off by gradients, traversed by potentials, marked by thresholds. In this sense, we believe in a biochemistry of schizophrenia, in conjunction with the biochemistry of drugs, that will be progressively more capable of determining the nature of this egg and the distribution of field gradient threshold. It is a matter of 
relationships of intensities, through which the subject passes on the body without organs, a process that engages him in becomings, rises and falls, migrations, and displacements. R. D. Lang is entirely right in defining the schizophrenic process as a voyage of initiation, a transcendental experience of the loss of ego, which causes a subject to remark, I had existed since the very beginning, from the lowest form of life to the present time. I was looking, not looking so much as just feeling. Ahead of me was lying the most horrific journey. When we speak here of a voyage, there is no more a metaphor than before when we spoke of an egg, and of what takes place in and on it. Morphogenetic movements, displacements of cellular groups, stretchings, folds, migrations, and local variations of potentials. There is no reason to oppose an interior voyage to exterior ones. Lenz's stroll, Nijinsky's stroll, the promenades of Beckett's creatures are effective realities, but where the reality of matter has abandoned all extension, just as the interior voyage has abandoned all form and quality, henceforth causing pure intensities, coupled together almost unbearable, to radiate within and without, intensities through which a nomadic subject passes. Here it is not a case of a hallucinatory experience, nor of a delirious mode of thought, but a feeling, a series of emotions and feelings as a consummation, and a consumption of intensive quantities, that form the material for the subsequent hallucinations and deliriums. The intensive emotion, the affect, is both the common root and the principle of differentiation of deliriums and hallucinations. All right. I, I can start off with the question of Sounds good. Um, what they mean with principle of differentiation. I get the common root, of course, but um, principle of differentiation of hallucination and um, what's the last word? I can't see it anymore. <laughs> Uh, uh, deliriums and hallucinations. Deliriums and hallucinations, yeah. So uh, how is an affect uh, a differentiation of deliriums and hallucinations? Because it sounds... That There's... Isn't uh, that opposed to the idea of common root? Sorry. No, so I was just going to say, in uh, early in chapter one, they're going to say that the, uh, the delirium, uh, I think, and the hallucinations I, fee or I see presuppose an even deeper I feel uh, of which they are simply the extension of the uh, subject experiencing the intensive quantities. Right. And so how are they then a differentiation? It's actually a great question. That um, is, yes. Yeah, I misunderstood what you were asking. That's a good question. I'm going to take a second and think about that because that's actually a very good question. Well, let's let's break down the, what this paragraph's talking about, and we'll come back to that. Let's, uh, as someone, make sure that we come back to that as we talk, uh, because I don't want to lose that thread. I think it would be worth us having a discussion around the rest of this, because uh, this paragraph is dense with a great deal of things in it. Um, when they're talking earlier about the egg, the, the body without organs, uh, they open up here. At this point, uh, within the third synthesis, we've seen how the body without organs was, in fact, an egg. It inside of this. The, the nature of it is crisscrossed with axes, banded with zones, localized with areas and fields, measured off by gradients, traversed by potentials, etc. Um, the body without organs at this point uh, is representing and able to start piecing together what the body 
that it, it is intending to be or, or, or pretending to be or what it is producing should behave like and what this is going to be doing, the nature of this egg, the distribution of the field gradient threshold. That's how I read the beginning of that. Um, at this point, they talk about the subject becoming. Uh, it is a matter of relationships, of intensities, through which the subject passes on the body without organs, a process that engages him in becomings, rises and falls, etc., the idea of here is that the subject is now moving alongside, uh, along this egg, uh, alongside these grids, alongside these uh, intensities, emotions, uh, represent the the uh, exclamations of the asignifying signs that it's finding relations for, uh, is how I read that part. Uh, and so here we're talking about kind of the subject beginning to make its journey across the egg across the body without organs and beginning to have its own or believe its own uh, or have decided for it, however you want to phrase it, but have the, uh, the intensities that are going to come to define the subject. Um, the, that's how I read that beginning part. Is that close to how other people are reading it? And I'm looking at you, Jack and webcam parrot for sure, but everyone else, because I know we've talked about this thing a few times, Jack. Um, yeah, I, I think that's exactly correct. Um, and I think that last line is is maybe not as complicated as as uh, as it seems. I think they're just saying that there's this point at which how do we what is the principle by which we differentiate different experiences, right? Because that everything is a delirium or hallucination, as they've talked about before. There isn't really a way of verifying a delirium or hallucination against a genuine experience, quote unquote, right? So the the way in which we do differentiate things is in the affect, just the way that it feels. So the idea being that the first two syntheses are firing off all their stuff in this third, uh, as the subject moves along the body without organs and experiences those intensities or whatever, we're, we're experiencing them as the intensive emotion, the affect, uh, the... Not a case. Yeah, there's of, no like essential essence that we're digging for, or whatever. Like what differentiates them is just how they appear. And so when they say uh, here, it is not a case of a hallucinatory experience, nor of a delirious mode of thought, but a feeling. That's uh, that feels like then it's a commentary more on uh, the classic way that, especially the Kanian method of kind of the stage show of the unconscious or the of, of Freud or the. Uh, the signifiers and symbols wandering around inside of the unconscious that create hallucinatory experiences that lie to us or tell us what we believe or anything. And it's like, no, at this point, what's produced is actually emotions in relation to the things that are being experienced and all the desire machines firing off simultaneously. And that intensive emotion is how uh, things are put together. This is the common root and really the principle of differentiation of deliriums and hallucinations. This is how we start deciding how we do things or what is what to us. Yeah, I think on some level there's like this rejection of like you say, like the symbolic understanding of things. Like there's nothing nothing hide nothing is hiding here, you know. It's not being hidden away. It just is as it is. We should stop pretending there's like this tiered existence of the symbolic imaginary and the real or, or whatever um freud would, would say about that um it's just it is as it is uh, by affect yeah what might help us here is working this out through the three stages right 
So at this point with the body without organs, like you were saying, Brutz, the we're getting these gradients, these zones, these thresholds through the distribution of Newman, right? And through the functionality and the coordination of uh, the desiring, desiring machines to produce in relation to the body without organs, right? So we've got that tension between miraculation and uh, demiraculation, right? Or attraction of the body without organs and repulsion, which is going to take us into the third synthesis, right? So at this point, we've got our coordination. We've kind of got that. It's not quite a grid because it's sort of a mythos. We've got an amoebic field and we've got a kind of a map going on. On that, right? That's funny. Um, so yeah, right. So at this point, voluptus is being distributed. Well, I shouldn't say distributed. Voluptus is being um, given out, right, by the celibate machine. So at this point, subjectivity is going to take place, and it's not going to be the subject we're used to. We'll get into that as we go, but you'll start to see how subjectivity is taking place um, in a more of a in more of a connected manner. So um, also, I think the use of the phrases uh, differentiation of delirium and hallucinations. The words there are very particular, and I'm trying to find the uh, etymology of it. I think for him and, and for them, the way they're writing this, uh, deliriums, uh, they, they are very particular about what a delirium is, that a delirium is a uh, belief about the world and representation that is based uh, in uh, socio-historical backgrounds. Uh, that's a very specific uh, thing, uh, whereas I think for hallucination, I, I would think they're they're putting more of the weight into sort of classic Freudian psychoanalysis of the hallucination, the uh, the hallucination, the hallucinatory effects of uh, the ego and the superego and the uh, image of satisfaction that comes from a thing. The hallucination that Freud talks about. Uh, please, Ken, uh, jump in if I'm I'm off here. But the idea of hallucination uh, or hallucinatory experiences is, that they refer to uh, is about images of satisfaction. Uh, someone who does a thing and then believes that they are satisfied or sort of is like that. They're saying like, look, the emotion that a person experiences is the common root and principle of differentiation. It's how we're able to tell these things apart when a person is experiencing something that is fairly hallucinatory in a clinical setting where They've kind of made up why, like whole cloth, why they're happy about a thing that a thing happened, or delirium, which is social historical, and not the same thing as a hallucination. Those being different, and the principle of differentiation between them, we can see is that the intensive emotion that's created by the body without organs that the subject experiences allows us to not only have these things happen; it's the common root, but allows us to differentiate them as well. The, the differentiation is like. So it's like the float. So let's just walk back to the first synthesis. When when a partial object interacts with desiring production, right? We have desiring machines, and we have the binary series, um, an emitting flow, and I think it's like a consuming flow, right? The machinic element is that differentiation of the flow. So what we're getting here is that, and and I think we've done a pretty good job digging into this, right? It's not simply that someone is um, feeling anger, right? It's that the affectivity during the third synthesis 
is being consumed by um, what's a what's a hand here, so the subject, so as to basically produce a differentiation in the subjectivity, right? And this is the the affect is going to be what um, we use to do to the affect here in, in its relation with the celibate machine is going to be doing the differentiation. It's going to be kind of changing things. And so like hallucination and delirium, I mean, they're always juxtaposing what they mean with like Freud and Lacan, right? But like delirium for Deleuze and Guattari is going to be like that movement between the schizophrenic and the paranoiac or the way that paralogisms affect syllogisms and vice versa. Right. So, right. I, I, I think I'm agreeing with you that it, it uh, hallucination, I think, actually comes from Kant, uh, the way that they talk about uh, superstitious beliefs and the payoffs of them as a hallucination, which I think is where Freud got it from. And I think they're referring to that as well, just given that a lot of Deleuze comes from Kant. So I'm kind of like, that's what I'm able to sort of garner. I think we'll dig into a little bit more. Does that, it's, it, it's pre-Kant even, there we go. Um, but anyway, I, I think, again, the the underlying thing they're getting at here is uh, in, in counterpoint to what we would say with Freud or anyone else, where uh, the uh, emotions are a result, uh, normally, not, not here, normally uh, emotions become the result of what we are convinced is uh, the satisfaction or what we are told is the right thing to do or whatever representations are, and they're reversing that. Uh, it is the common root and the principle of differentiation between these. So it actually is coming first, the intensive emotion before we have um, the I'm satisfied because, or I hate these people because, or whatever uh, deliriums. That's, I think the big point they're trying to make. I, I mean, it's, we know it's the bigger point they're trying to make overall is that the desiring machines sort of come first in the order of things before we do. Affect is the important word here as well. Not just emotion. Yes. Like I said, Misha, like uh... It's not simply you're feeling anger, right? It's that the affect and the way that intensity is going to affect the subject, right? That becomes um, anger, yeah. So you get the subjects feeling anger, but there's a whole, there's an intensive quanta that produces that emotion. Yeah, and I and I I was waiting for a second, and then I realized Lou's not in the room, so I'll play Lou. Uh, the idea that uh, we only know our body from without by perception, but also from within by affections is Bergson. And that affections, that internal thing is the train from Bergson all the way through. Like, I have to play Lou for a second. Uh, in, in, intensive emotions. He's, he's wondering the difference between why do they say intensive? Does it mean intense? Uh, I think is what he's saying. Yeah, I think it's they're talking about intensities, uh, what Jack said there, that... It's not so much intense. Sorry, can you intense. hear me? Yes, please, please. Um, yeah, I can see in the French they're using intensive uh, instead of intense. And what's really the why they are using this word and not intense? Uh, so I, I read it as in, it's intensive in, in English. Um, uh, do they use intense elsewhere? I think it's almost, it almost becomes oh, like a key word for them, right? Like it, it's intensive I, in French too. That's fine. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I think it's almost a keyword for them, right? We're just talking about like these very, very base, bare, like at their at their formative stage. Yeah, it's it's um 
Intense naturally means with a great deal of force. Like that tends to be the connotations with it. Intensive specifically is about the the giving of force. When we say an intensive emotion, it can be in a, in a lot of different directions at various levels, but it is a uh, force giving thing. It's not just some like sort of emotional response that it is intensive. It is, it, it has power behind it. To the affect, the uh, impetus, the impetus. Thank you. God, there's that's a good word for it. Thank you. Uh, I I do want to move to the next paragraph though, because um, it gets in a little bit to the deliriums and the hallucinations and other things, and we can start having that conversation. But um, that was great. Uh, we are also of a mind to believe that everything commingles in these intense becomings, passages, and migrations. All this drift that ascends and descends the flows of time, countries, races, families, parental appellations, divine appellations, geographical and historical designations, and even miscellaneous news items. I feel that I am becoming God. I am becoming woman. I was Joan of Arc, and I am Heliogabbos, and the great Mongol. I am a Chinaman, a Redskin, a Templar. I was my father, and I was my son. And all the criminals, the whole list of criminals, the decent criminals and the scoundrels, Zondi rather than Freud and his Oedipus, quote, perhaps it's by trying to be worm that I'll finally succeed in being Mahud. Then I'll have to, all I'll have to do is be worm, which no doubt I shall achieve by trying to be Jones. Then all I'll have to do is be Jones, end quote. But if everything commingles in this fashion, it does so in intensity, with no confusion of spaces and forms, since these have indeed been undone on behalf of a new order, the intense and the intensive order. Okay, that's why I wanted to read the next one. It's basically an answer to your question, Michael. Uh, any thoughts, comments on that one, or should I continue? What is the nature of this order? The first things to be distributed on the body without organs are races, cultures, and their gods. The fact has often been overlooked that the schizo indeed participates in history. She hallucinates and raves universal history and proliferates the races. All delirium is racial, which does not necessarily mean racist. It is not a matter of the regions of the body without organs, representing races, cultures. The full body does not represent anything at all. On the contrary, the races and cultures designate regions on this body that is, zones of intensities, fields of potentials. Phenomena of individualization and sexualization are produced within these fields. We pass from one field to another by crossing thresholds. We never stop migrating. We become other individuals as well as other sexes, and departing becomes as easy as being born or dying. Along the way, we struggle against other races. We destroy civilizations. In the manner of the great migrants, in whose wake nothing is left standing once they have passed through, although these destructions can be brought about, as we shall see, in two very different ways. Uh, going over the concept of delirium here, uh, again, uh, talking about uh, how it operates that the schizophrenic uh, does participate in history as he makes his way through whatever he's doing, moving through the zones of intensity's field of potentials, passing from one field to another. It's a really poetic, interesting paragraph. Uh, questions on this one, please. 
Yes, I just have a question that is not directly related to the sentences, but more of a context question around this paragraph. And that is, if they actually try to make or connections with um, sociology at the time as well, when they're talking about stuff like um, uh, migration being an everlasting ongoing thing, I'm just wondering if that's also like a wink to um, migration theory around around that uh, time not familiar enough to be able to answer all right uh, is anyone familiar enough to answer <laughs> no uh, Misha let's put a pin in that one and we will try to answer it after the talk or maybe this week because it's actually a solid question again do, do love yeah, getting questions yeah, everyone sure. I do love getting questions the crossing of a threshold entails ravages elsewhere how could it be otherwise? The body without organs closes round the deserted places. The theater of cruelty cannot be separated from the struggle against our culture, from the confrontation of the races, and from Artaud's great migration toward Mexico, its forces and its religions. Individuations are produced only within fields of forces expressly defined by intensive vibrations, and that animate cruel personages only insofar as they are induced organs. Hearts of desiring machines, mannequins. A season in hell, how could it be separated from denunciations of European families, from the call for destructions that don't come quickly enough, from the admiration for the convict, from the intense crossing of thresholds of history, from this prodigious migration, this becoming woman, this becoming Scandinavian or Mongol, this displacement of races and of continents, this feeling of raw intensity, that presides over delirium as well as over hallucinations, and especially this deliberate stubborn material will to be this, this sorry this deliberate stubborn material will to be of a race inferior for all eternity. Quote, I have known every son of good birth. I have never been of this people. I have never been Christian. Yes, my eyes are closed to your light. I am a beast, a Negro. End quote. I guess I'll be the one to say it. Arthur Rimbaud is season in hell. One of the lines in here I really like is, uh, the body without organs closes round the deserted places. Uh, the nature of how the body without organs functions is it doesn't have gaps. Uh, it closes around places sort of naturally. Uh, it's a way that the body without organs functions, but also representation in general. They write about this later in this book and as well in, in a number of other pieces about how, uh, I don't know how else to put it because uh, I don't have it in front of me. Uh, the way that representations work is they are effectively total. Uh, the body without organs is as well. It's as far as with whatever we understand, it encompasses all of those things. We may add to it, may, we may grow it, but it uh, it doesn't have gaps. This especially gaps because it's based on perception. It doesn't have gaps we can see or understand. And so it closes around the deserted places. Everything is encompassed within it. It does read like a Jodorowsky moment, for sure. For sure, it does. I suppose this is as good of a time as any to say, or rather ask. Um, so how are we understanding uh, sets, race, and culture here? because they're starting to walk this out um, during the third synthesis. So what are you guys making here? Can you or, ask it again? 
Yeah, I'll give a passage to help too. So what's going on here with um, race, with sexuality, with sets, with culture? What are Deleuze and Guattari saying? And to give a passage, uh, one that just sticks out to me, the theater of cruelty cannot be separated from the struggle against our culture, from the confrontation of the so-called races, and from Artaud's great migration toward Mexico, its forces and its religions. Individuations are produced only within fields of forces, expressly defined by intensive vibrations, and that animate cruel personages only insofar as they are induced organs, parts of desired machines. Don't I don't have an answer for it that doesn't start bringing in chapter three. I don't know if I can formulate an answer that only utilizes what is really here in a way that I think is effective, because this is one of the things that took me uh, through I think our, even our sort of summary of chapter three for me to start grasping how they're talking about uh, race, religion, and the social historical background of the psyche and how it impinges via, onto things. All right. Anyone else? To me, it seems like they're describing some kind of roller coaster that then the subject is subjected to. Okay, so tell us more about that, really. What would it mean to be a roller coaster of race? Mm, like, I'm just, I'm just picturing it as something that has clear foundations and structures and constructions. Um, you know how a roller coaster, also when you play roller coaster tycoon, that's really what you get visually. I think is that you have a clear um, difference in sort of the skeletal, skeletal structure of the. Um, of the under part of a roller coaster and then the actual top part where you drift upon. Um, and what I like about the image of roller coasters as well is sort of this, these differences in height and stuff. Um, so when you have something like um, a conception of race that is, has is sort of a skeletal, skeletal construction, where then as a subject you can slide down um, towards the next thing uh, on top. Sorry, maybe this only makes sense to me. Well, I, th I think you're on the right track, if we'll extend your roller coaster metaphor, right? So let's make it kind of a, let's go back to the body without organs as kind of a plane here. So we just have kind of a plateau, yeah. So if we've got zones of intensity is right, and that's where race, where religion, where sexuality, where sets in this, that's where the subjectivity of it's happening, right? So in this sense, something like race is an intensity, one that, an, uh, I don't want to say animates, one that affects the subject, right? So race is here being treated as a subjectivity, but also as an intensity, as a, um, it's that third energy once again in relation to those, those coordinations, right? The functions. As we pass over in the synthesis, we're seeing how sexuality here is not really that transsexuality we saw in the disjunctive synthesis, but it's going to be in the third sense, which is the subjectivity of sexuality, the subjectivity of race or uh, culture here. So when we get that last bit, right, um, I am not of your race, I'm of an inferior race, right? The move they're making now is to... to differentiate between two uses of this synthesis, right? Which is going to show us how intensities and subjectivities, 
how there's the way that the unconscious produces that, and then there's the paralogistic way that affects that production, but also um, isn't produced by the unconscious, right? I'm going to take a stab. Oh, oh, thank you for that, Jack. And actually, the roller coaster uh, metaphor, uh, even though you, you didn't think anyone was able to understand, I it, it kicked something. So, okay, so we move through the connective and the, dis, and the disjunctive, and the desiring machines are disconnecting, kicking off tons of different uh, emotions and intensities, a lot of them, all at once. And as these kick off, they're creating, in this paragraph, they seem to be implying that it's not that the subject is created. Maybe I've been misunderstanding that, but instead, uh, types of subjectives, subjects are created. Uh, a black, a European family, a race, anything. The individuations are produced only within fields of forces expressly defined by intensive vibrations that animate cruel personages only in insofar as they are induced organs, parts of desiring machines. They use the mannequin there. I really would love to understand why they use that. But the idea here being maybe uh, as the body without organs is producing these sort of, uh, these connections are happening, <clears throat> they tend to, in large numbers especially, uh, imply certain types of subjectivization that are produced. And so as I move through, let's talk about the the roller coaster and the, the zones of intensities. Uh, let's say it's like a video game and there's these giant blocks in front of me as I'm walking and there's, there's this one that's a big yellow block that I can walk through and the next one's red, the next one's blue. And those are, as I'm passing through in that moment, I'm blue, I am yellow, I am red. Those blocks are essentially the intensive emotions and affects that are generated by me being sort of effectively uh, in those sort of the way it's produced uh, Christian here, black here, whatever, as I'm sort of making my way through, because it's not so much the race, which is the large scale representation in delirium, but the affect that pushes me in that direction. And so it's not so it's, does that make sense? Am I rambling too much here? No, you're on your way there. I mean, because that's really what they're getting at is like this isn't this isn't ratio essentialism, se uh, sexual essentialism, right? So like when they say the subject is produced here, if we go back to the second synthesis, right? The body without organs is putting is falling back on production and putting it to work to create a surplus. During the third synthesis, the subject appears, right, and the celibate machine is going to work with the excess of that surplus, or rather this, the bit that the body without organs doesn't appropriate for itself. That excess from that production is going to be, um, I don't want to use the word distributed, it's going to be confusion. It's going to be pushed by the celibate machine onto, these, uh, onto the subject, right? So it's not simply going to be, and we'll see this as we go on, but we're going to see how there's a connectivity here. Because if we go back to that third synthesis, right, the celibate machine sits in the middle, right? It distributes along a circle, right? And they're going to build it up here with the circular ego, certainly not the one we're used to um, and like Freud. But in that sense, we're going to see subjectivity. So something like a subjectivity of not even simply being black, of becoming black, of becoming a Templar, becoming red. Um, we're seeing how the subject is moving through zones of intensities in relation to that production and is basically affected or uh, having these intensities 
pushed upon them so as to feel these things. Let's right, let's call them let's call them let's call them like personality parts. Like they're effectively parts of what we might say are the things that make up a Scandinavian, a Mongol, becoming woman, this or that. They're the elements that essentially sort of make up that type of person. And so that is what is produced. And that is what sort of the emotional resonance is with, is the the elements of these various personalities that seem to be pushing in a specific direction. But it's like, uh, I can't help but bring in logic a sense. I'm going to try to avoid doing that too. Um, the, the nature of the perception of the emotion that it's putting me through a lot of these different combinations of at any point, the thing that I'm doing is essentially becoming woman or becoming man or becoming parent or becoming black or becoming white or becoming Indian or becoming English or becoming French or whatever. And it's the little small connections sort of in aggregate that these are the types of subjectivization that are made. Yeah, subjectivity, right? Because when we say consuming and consummating, so that the subject is consuming these intensities, but it's also consummated by it. This is the last bit we got to walk out, right? So if you think about consumption on a roller coaster, right, there's but a consumption I, of the momentum. I will, I, I think I would rather read a little bit more because uh, before we get to the consumption, because we aren't, I don't think we're there yet. Um, That's fair. That's um, the last bit we need to walk out. So Yeah, but we'll, I think we're like three paragraphs from it. And I think the rest of this, we're still dealing with the creation of the subjectivity. Um We'll get there. I think we'll get there. I don't want to stop you, but I think we need to keep charging ahead or we will get stuck. We're like three paragraphs in right now. So um, I will I will read the next paragraph because it continues uh, kind of with the current uh, thought. Um, and can Zarathustra be separated from the grand politics and from the bringing to life of the races that lead Nietzsche to say, I'm not a German, I'm Polish. Here again, individuations are brought about solely within complexes of forces that determine persons as so many intensive states embodied in a criminal, ceaselessly passing beyond a threshold while destroying the fictitious unity of a family and an ego. Quote, I am Prado. I am also Prado's father. I venture to say that I am also Lesseps. I wanted to give my Parisians, who I love, a new idea, that of a decent criminal. I am also Chambige also a decent criminal. The present unpleasant thing, and the one thing that nags my modesty, is at the root of every name in history is I, end quote. Yet it was never a question of identifying oneself with personages, as when it is erroneously maintained that a madman takes himself for so-and-so. It is a question of something quite different, identifying races, cultures, and gods with fields of intensity on the body without organs, identifying personages with states that fill these fields and with effects that fulgurate within the traverse within and traverse these fields. Someone look that word up for me. Whence the role of names with a magic all their own. There is no ego that identifies with races, peoples, and persons in a theater of representation, but proper names that identify races, peoples, and persons with regions, thresholds, or effects in a production of intensive quantities. The theory of proper names should not be conceived of in terms of representation. It refers instead to the class of effects, effects that are not a mere dependence on causes, but the occupation of a domain and the operation of a system of signs. 
This can be clearly seen in physics, where proper names designate such effects within fields of potentials, the Joule effect, Seebeck effect, Kelvin effect. History is like a physics, a Joan of Arc effect, a Heliogabulus effect, all the names of history and not the name of the father. You know, one of the things that's really, my son's <clears> done for, for, a, for a very long time uh, is he watches a kid's shows. He, he, he loves the dog. He loves us. And he'll walk around and he'll say, I'm daddy. And he, he behaves different. It just feels, uh, this is an interesting way to look at all of this. It's not so much saying that people are saying that they are these historical figures. And then we work backwards from there, but instead that their subjectivization is being influenced by how they're making these connections and the emotions that they're feeling that are in connection with these larger social historical delusions, uh, not delusions, um, uh, beliefs or connections that they're making that create the subjectivity, intensities. the intensities. I think definitely. Cause like, even if you go back just to the second paragraph, uh, at least in the penguin translation into English, they, they put in parentheses before like, I am becoming God. I am becoming woman. I was Joan of Arc. I was Helio Gabulus. They put, I feel that in, italics and parentheses uh and i think combining that with sort of like the last sentence here uh all the names of history and not the names of the father sort of harkens back to their or sort of pushes forward rather their uh idea that the unconscious is auto-produced the, the orphan unconscious that like the the sheer biological production of our bodies is not the only act that is necessarily or that produces our unconscious that like all the effects in history up until us produced us well and it's again in opposition to the traditional psychoanalytic thought where uh people believe themselves to be the thing and then have the emotions following and uh, what needs to be repaired is the hallucination, and that will fix uh, the emotions afterwards because that's the root. And this argument is saying the opposite, that the reality is it's the connections that are being made and emotions produced which make a person uh, decide to identify and have a Joan of Arc effect, a helioglambulus effect, or in my son's occasional case, the Mario effect or toad effect or peach effect, depending on his mood. And it does change significantly. <laughs> He's three. Uh, he's been doing it since he was like one and a half. Um, and a lot of kids do it. I see it at the park all the time. Uh, and they very much take it seriously. It's interesting. Yeah, that's a, that's actually a wonderful example because like we see with Arto, right? I have been my father. I have been my mother, right? I have been, I am, be, refers to a, uh, I don't want to say a state of becoming, but refers to a becoming, right? Like we saw with Brooke's son, becoming father right or becoming roots the the name is to take us into the effect as opposed to like you're saying for the effect to take us into what the name is right it's that kind of question of like do we worry about the being of dad or do we worry about the becoming that the effect is inculcating i shouldn't say inculcating producing individuations are brought about solely within complexes of forces that determine persons as so many intensive states all right, uh, I will, unless there's more thoughts, I will continue to the next paragraph. Jack, go for it. Yeah, can we just focus a little bit? Um, 
because I think this is worth diving into just a little bit before we move on, because we kind of talked about the eye already, right, and this kind of difference with uh, the normal ego there. So Deleuze and Guattari write, the theory of proper names should not be conceived of in terms of representation. It refers instead to the class of so-called effects, effects that are not a mere dependence on qualities. You might recognize this from Logic of Senses today. But the, but the occupation of the domain and the operation of the system of signs. This can be clearly seen in physics, where proper names designate such effects within fields of potentials. The Joule effect, the Seaback effect, and this has been read enough times, I'll just skip to the end. All the names of history and not the names of the founding. What do you guys make of that ending passage? Or to be direct, so when we're talking about these effects, right, what's happening here? How do we get the effects? Is it, is it the recordings that, 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 cause, that cause the effects? I think the relation between recordings. Uh, because we're talking about things that are produced on the body without organs, which is a series of recorded uh, asignifying signs that produce the field of intensity, which uh, essentially outgoes this sort of impetus energy that is the Joan of Arc effect, the helioglobulus effect. It's not a full, it's not like it's Joan of Arc appearing, but it's the relations and emotion that's caused by that, which gives the Joan of Arc effect that the person relates to based on how their understanding of Joan of Arc exists moving right to it right so if it's a system of signs that gives us the effect like you're saying it's those recordings in the body of that organs but also the way in which the zones are pre being produced right so the distribution in that second synthesis taking us into the third we're talking about functionalities and the way that they lead to the production of uh, intensities or effects right and that's going to constitute the subjectivity for the subject right so you get the alien I'll even make it simple, right? You get something like heterosexuality, not through like biology, but through a series of coordinations, right? And those functions and the effects in that series of coordinations or a series of signs is what produces that sexuality, right? And uh, so, I think I think the phrase when he says at the very end there, it's the names of history, um, uh, not the name of the father the the line it's uh, again it's directly sort of shitting on Lacan. it's a direct line at hey the the behavior in all this is not from some weird on high you know transcendental thing but instead it's the names of history but again those names are as they say that there is no full was it the previous uh paragraph or was it this one where he says the full body um let's see where's the full body line uh, about the full body not having Full body does not represent anything at all. On the contrary, races and cultures designate regions on this body, zones of intensities, fields of potentials, phenomena of individualization and sexualization are produced within them. The the names of history, the Joan of Arc effect, uh, there probably would be very few people today with, say, the heliogabalus effect, uh, but more with maybe the Mario effect or the Dexter effect or whatever it might be. Um, yeah, and that's exactly it, right? Because we're dealing with the... So when you say the name of the father, right? That's the second paralogism. So right here, they're working out how the second paralog... How the second and third synthesis interrelate, right? And so when you get like the Detster effect, right? It's not that it's in reference to Detster the person. It's that it's in reference to a system of coordinates for signs 
that we're that's being called the Detzter effect, right? But that subjectivity is based on the affect, not on the person or the name Detzter, like the name of the father. I think I want to move to the next paragraph because it continues this. Um, yeah, I'm going to continue. Um, everything has been said about the paucity of reality, the loss of reality, the lack of contact with life, autism, and ethemia. Ethemia. Schizophrenics themselves have said everything there is to say about this and have been quick to slip into the unexpected clinical mode. Mold. Dark world, growing desert. A solitary machine hums on the beach, an atomic factory installed in the desert. But if the body without organs is indeed this desert, it is as an indivisible, non-decomposable distance over which the schizo glides in order to be everywhere. Everywhere something real is produced. Everywhere something real has been and will be produced. It is true that reality has ceased to be a principle. According to such a principle, the reality of the real was posed as a divisible abstract quantity, whereas the real was divided up into qualified entities, into distinct qualitative forms. But now the real is a product that envelops the distances within intensive quantities. The indivisible is enveloped and signifies that what envelops it does not divide without changing its nature or form. The schizo has no principles. He is something only by being something else. He is Mahud only by being Worm, and Worm only by being Jones. He is a girl only by being an old man who is miming or simulating the girl. Or rather, by being someone who is simulating an old man, simulating a girl. Or rather, by simulating someone, etc. This was already true of the completely oriental art, the Roman emperors, the Twelve Paranoiacs of Suetonius. In a great book by Jacques Bess, we encounter once again the double stroll of the schizo, the geographic exterior voyage followed, following non-decomposable distances, and the interior historical voyage enveloping intensities. Christopher Columbus calms his mutinous crew and becomes admiral again only by simulating a false admiral who is simulating a whore who is dancing. So we should prepare you guys for this because we're about to get into, because we had an argument about this last time. We're, we're about to get into losing Guadri's engagement with simulation, right? Which you can already see here. Simulation is taking place in relation to, like it's not, a, it's not just the person simulating something, right? But there's a way in which the simulation corresponds to people here. So there's a, a connectivity, just like with desiring machines and that. As we go through this, um, there's a temptation to put this in light of Baudrillard. I'm simply going to say that it's different than Baudrillardian simulation. Like this isn't going to be a question of hyperreality. This is going to be a question of those coordinations and that that are part of the simulation. So like with the Joan of Arc effect. There's a simulation of Joan of Arc, but it's not about uh, Joan of Arc, the person per se. It's about the coordinations that that name can be attached to. So you get um, the identification of an affect in that manner. No, I want to also add uh, the the comment here. Uh, first, uh, don't bring up Baudrillard. It's just going to be one of the things I'm just going to stop at this point because it's one of the reasons we ended up rabbit holing really badly last time. Uh, we will end up still disagreeing on some things. I have a feeling very quickly here, but 
the question was asked, uh, is it a reference to the disjunctive principle, not either, but or, or, or? The, and I think you're referencing uh, Bostgerd. Uh, he is only Mahood by being Worm, Worm only by being Jones, a girl by being an old man. Is that the uh, text you're referencing there? Um, that is a reference to the fact that uh, he's not actually those things. Like, no matter what he's doing, there is uh, a preceding thing that he is, uh, to the nature of it. So when he says the schizo has no principles, he is only he is something only by being something else. It means he's never the thing. Uh, he is Steve. Well, no, he's not Steve. He's someone pretending to be Steve. Well, really, he's someone pretending to be someone pretending to be Steve. There's there's no point where we've reached the who the schizo is. It's really, by the way, going to be a really important point here pretty soon that we never get to that. Uh, uh, there's no bottom to who that person is, kind of. Versus, again, the traditional way of thinking about the unconscious that we hit a wall and it's like, cool, that's that's where my unconscious, that's my id, that's my superego, that's my ego, and this is me. It's like, no, you're only this by pretending to be that. Well, I mean, you're not pretending to be that. Someone else is pretending to be pretending to be that, etc. So, uh, yeah, it's a whole thing. All right, I will continue to the next uh, part. Uh, simulation must be stood, understood in the same way we spoke of identification. It expresses those non-decomposable distances always enveloped in the intensities that divide into one another while changing their form. If identification is a nomination, a designation, then simulation is the writing corresponding to it, a writing that is strangely polyvocal, flush with the real. It carries the real beyond its principle to the point where it is effectively produced by the desiring machine, the point where the copy ceases to be a copy in order to become the real and its artifice. To seize an intensive real, as produced in the coextension of nature and history, to ransack the Roman Empire, the Mexican cities, the Greek gods, and the discovered continents so as to extract from them this always surplus reality, and to form the treasure of the paranoiac tortures, and the celibate glories, all of the pogroms of history, that's what I am, and all the triumphs too, as if a few simple univocal events could be extricated from this extreme polyvocity. Such is the histrionism of the schizophrenic, according to Klosowski's formula, the true program for a theater of cruelty, the mise-en-scene of the machine to produce the real. Far from having lost who knows what uh, far from having lost who knows what contact with life, the schizophrenic is closest to the beating heart of reality, to an intense point identical with the production of the real, and that leads Reich to say, quote, What belongs specifically to the schizophrenic patient is that he experiences the vital biology of the body with respect to their experiencing of life. The neurotic patient and the perverted individual are to the schizophrenic as the petty thief is to the daring safecracker. End quote. So the question returns. What reduces the schizophrenic to his autistic hospitalized profile cut off from reality? Is it the process or is it rather the interruption of the process, its aggravation, its continuation into the void? What forces the schizophrenic to withdraw to a body without organs that has become deaf dumb and blind. Uh, so as we said, the use of simulation here is significantly different, uh, and it, this will be the usage that they use through the rest of this book. Uh, it is not the same 
thing at all as Baudrillard's version here. Not even remotely. So one, one passage to focus on here is if identification is a nomination, a designation, then simulation is the writing corresponding to it, a writing that is strangely polyvocal, flush with the real. So really, we're talking here about how like something like identification. So Joan of Arc, Ilio Gabalis, right? There's a designation, kind of like a place. This is going to take us into simulation, which is the writing corresponding to it. So we saw in the second, so um, the second synthesis, right? Disjunctions form the genealogy, right? Those coordinations. So like when we're going to record in that, those coordinations as well as their relationship with the present, with the production at hand, with the the ongoing three syntheses, whatever we're dealing with at the moment, that all connects to give us these effects and to give us the simulation, right? And so is, is the simulation, let's say, designated the designated designated to the subject? Is that is that the point or no? Can you ask that one more time? Is is the sim is the simulation then meant for the realm of the subject? Or or, or not? Yeah, the, the simulation is going to be subjectivity, right? So the designation would be like the Joan of Arc effect. But the affectivity, that is those coordinations and that that is producing the subjectivities, those coordinations and that is the affect that is that can be then designated as the Joan of Arc effect. So it's kind of what Brutz was saying earlier, right? Instead of going toward who Joan of Arc is and to understand it in terms of that reference, right? It's trying to dig down instead into the functionalities and that to get into like the, the intensities and the capacities as opposed to using um, the simulation as a way of getting into something more real, what Joan of Arc is, as opposed to the functions that are being called Joan of Arc effect. All right, uh, I will move. Just, sorry, go ahead, oh, Sorry, Go ahead, no, please. Yeah, yeah. one, one more thing, because somebody said in the chat, um, this being Plato's simulation. Did Plato ever call it simulation, or is Ben just referring to the whole idea, the whole um, idea of ideas? He, he called it simulacra. She... Similar. Um, you know, it's a copy without an original type thing. It's a, a something, a copy of something, an imperfect copy of something that that, that loses its status as a copy and becomes a thing unto itself yeah i mean that's a that's a nice engagement because like if you focus on the the model of joan of arc right what joan of arc should be it's going to take you right out of the coordinations and that which is what webcam parents highlighting there right those functions and that and the affect right the way that you're getting the subjectivity and the simulation that's going to change whatever you think Joan of Arc is altogether, right? Because the, the, the simulation here challenges what, um, what would become a model. But yeah, I, I don't know how deep you want to go into simulation here. It's a, it's I, I think a, it's, I understand enough to move. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a weird rabbit hole. The last time we literally spent, I think, an hour and a half on it, and it killed most of our discussion. The short version is they don't really use the word simulation very much ever again. Uh, really like it's just 
very specific tiny usage and they mean it more in the platonic sense but it's again referring to something rather than coming up with a term like uh, Baudrillard's entire why rests on the idea of simulation and simulacra he wrote a book called such a thing so that's uh, a little bit of a different setup here um, what we're talking about here and we're about to get into fully um, is uh, the the way that the the simulation or whatever the the way that these intensities are produced and how it then produces uh, the at the reality of life for a schizophrenic what what is their world like how does it work uh, why do they end up turning into the point where they have to be hospitalized instead of like a handful of you know eccentric characters they brought up so far and they're now getting into the like what forces a schizophrenic to withdraw to a body without organs that has become deaf, dumb, and blind. What what happens at that point? What cuts them off from reality? Um, and I'll be getting into that uh, now. I'm going to dive in. We often hear it said, he thinks he's Louis the Seventeenth. Not true. In the Louis the Seventeenth affair, or rather in the finest case, that of the pretender Richemont. Richemont, there is a desiring machine or a celibate machine in the center. Uh, the horse with short jointed paws inside which they supposedly put the dolphin so he could flee. And then all around, there are agents of production and anti-production, the organizers of the escape, the accomplices, the allied sovereigns, the revolutionary enemies, the jealous and hostile uncles who are not persons, but so many states of rising and falling through which the pretender passes. Uh, if you aren't aware of what they're talking about here, I'm just sorry, I'm pausing for a second. Uh, Rushmont, I'm sorry if I mispronounced the name, I'm sure I am, uh, uh, was famously really believed that he was and actually took claim to the idea of being Louis the Seventeenth, who had escaped through this crazy setup and everything. It was a pretty cool story, actually, as far as this stuff goes. It's an excessively elaborate uh, tale that was wove. So that's what they're talking about here. They're being very specific as they use these terms against the the story that he has come up with uh, and that other people bought into uh, a little bit. It's kind of a, it's worthwhile digging it. So to continue. Uh, moreover, the pretender Reichmann's stroke of genius is not simply that he takes into account Louis the 17th or that he takes other pretenders into account by denouncing them as fake. What is so ingenious is that he takes other pretenders into account by assuming them, authenticating them, that is to say, by making them two into states through which he passes. I am Louis the Seventeenth, but I am also Hervagal and Mathurin Bruneau, who claimed to be Louis the Seventeenth. Reichmont doesn't identify with Louis the Seventeenth. He lays claim to the premium due to the person who traverses all the singularities of the series, converging around the machine for kidnapping Louis the Seventeenth. There is no ego at the center any more than there are persons distributed on the periphery. Nothing but a series of singularities in the disjunctive network or intensive states in the conjunctive tissue and a transpositional subject moving full circle, passing through all of the states, triumphing over some as over his enemies, relishing others as his allies, collecting everywhere the fraudulent premium of his avatars partial object, a well-situated scar, ambiguous besides, is better proof than all the memories of childhood the pretender lacks. The conjunctive synthesis can therefore be expressed, so I am the king, so the kingdom belongs to me. But this me is merely the residual subject, 
it sweeps the circle and concludes the self from its oscillations on the circle. This is an amazing breakdown of how this, this process works. Uh, first, I'll say any questions, any comments, any thoughts. I, I love this paragraph. And it makes a lot more sense this time reading around. I was so happy reading it last night. Like, I, you should, don't go back and listen to the old recording. Let me just say that, but you should go back and listen. Uh, I did not do well. We'll just say, uh, don't go back and listen. I'm going to delete it. Um, please, uh, any thoughts, any comments before I dive in? Because I love this. So, uh, I'll just break down my reading of this. Um, I... I love this because it, again, turns on its head the idea that at the center is a man who believes he is literally and has the internal experience of being Louis the Seventeenth. It's not really what's happening, they're saying. Instead, they're saying, look, if you look around the entire setup, he has all of these signs. They're A-signifying signs that are on his BWO, but they're all these, these emotional intensities about things, people who did well to him, people who did poorly, and he's able to integrate them into this overall setup, not because he believes he is literally Louis the 17th, although he does, but it's more that he's, uh, as they would have said in the previous uh, line, I want to just get it right, um, to paraphrase, he is Louis the 17th only by being Louis the 17th who was kidnapped, only by being Louis the 17th who was also faking it. Like he lays claim to, as they say, all of the people around this. He lays claim to all of their realities. It's not just the one. Uh, nothing but a series of singularities in this disjunctive network, intensive states in the conjunctive tissue, and a transpositional subject moving full circle, passing through all the states. There is no ego in the middle. There is no person sitting there. He's all of it uh, coalesced together. And at that point, you can say, ah, I am the king. The kingdom belongs to me because of all of these uh, intensities that are popping up. The, only, the thing I've kept thinking about is Q. This is QAnon. Uh, the way that that operates for people and the way that that works uh, feels like a direct line because anything works and they can take in anything as long as they're playing or part of the role and the role is that of the freedom fighter, the person who cares about the world, who cares about it more than anyone. They don't give a shit if they actually care about it or what their actual background is but they're able to see everyone as playing these other roles opposite them. They are this person within the social historical network of signs and signifiers and intensities that are moving around them. Uh, they are this nothing but a singularity inside of the disjunctive network. I really love this section. So the, the part I want, there's two parts I want to draw attention to. There is no ego, no eager, there is no ego at the center any more than there are persons distributed on the periphery. Nothing but a series of singularities in the disjunctive network or intensive states in the conjunctive tissue, second, third synthesis, and a transpositional subject moving full circle, passing through all the states, triumphing over some as over his enemies, relishing others as his allies, collecting everywhere the fraudulent premium of his avatars. So right here, we're seeing the subject moving full circle, as they say, right? It's transpositional. It's moving through the disjunctions, and the subject is um, experiencing these intensities, right? It's important as we build this out because they're going to come back to this full circle aspect. 
but the other thing is right it's not about the persons at the peripheral any more than it is like uh, brooks was saying ego at the center um let me see here. Oh, and i also want to add what is at the center and it's what i really like about this way of thinking through delusions through the way people view things is again not them at the center seeing other stuff which is the classic way we see someone who believes the thing always oh, jesus christ well if only i can point out this reason that he's not jesus christ he at the middle will be able to see it it's like no at the center as they say here there is a desiring machine or a celibate machine a horse with short jointed paws inside which they supposedly put the dolphin so he could flee. That's a, that's the beginning, the moment. And then the rest of it is basically uh, signs and intensities that surround that moment and that, uh, that essence, that emotional intensity around that connective group of partial objects that either function as production or anti-production for that element. Everything goes back to that because it's literally not a thing you can disprove. Like it's literally just a purely emotional attachment he has to this thing. That is how he believes he got away because he had this fucking weird horse that he got inside of. It's a great story, but it's just absurd enough that everything kind of builds up around it. By putting that at the middle, it changes how you can actually engage with the overall uh, issue, how you engage with the person because again, there is no ego at the center. There's that desiring machine, that that connective group that makes that uh, thing true. Then all around are agents of production and anti-production. Those who helped the escape, those he sees as positive or those he sees as anti-production who are uh, you know uh, detracting or, or taking energy away from that or whatever, revolutionary enemies, jealous, hostile uncles, all of that. This is how he moves, not with him at the middle, but with the overarching story and representation. That is effectively his BWO, I think, would be how I'd phrase it. Well, it's all on the surface of the BWO. Because that's the thing, right? The BWO here, it's, it's not the self, it's the plane upon which these inscriptions and this disjunctive network um, are inscribed, right? Or, or rather found in a genealogical sense. And that the zones get constituted in that manner. And so the celibate machine is going to push out those intensities, right? And that's how you get that last part, right? That there's not a self here. The self is a residual, right? So there, right? So I am the king, so the kingdom belongs to me. But this me is merely the residual subject that sweeps the circle and concludes a self from its oscillation on the circle, right? That's really important because here the self, it's not like there's, um, and I gotta say this, this section is really, an interesting engagement. If you wanted to walk it out with Jung, you could have some really interesting work here. But it's kind of that same idea where the self isn't the static thing that you access, right? The self is produced as a residual of the intensities or the traversal of the uh, the zones. All delirium possesses a world historical, political, and racial content, mixing and sweeping along races, cultures, continents, and kingdoms. Some weather wonder whether this long drift merely constitutes a derivative of Oedipus. The familial order explodes. Families are challenged. Son, father, mother, sister. I mean those families like my own that owe all to the declaration of the rights of man. When I seek out my most profound opposite, I always encounter my mother and my sister. To see myself related to such German rabble is, as it were, 
a blasphemy with respect to my doctrine of the eternal return. It is a question of knowing if the historico-political, the racial, and the cultural are merely part of a manifest content and formally depend on a work of elaboration, or if, on the contrary, this content should be followed as the thread of latency, the odor of families hides from us. Should the rupture with families be taken as a sort of familial romance that would indeed bring us back again to families and refer us to an event or a structural determination inside the family itself? Or is this rather the sign that the problem must be raised in a completely different manner, because it is already raised elsewhere for the schizo himself, outside the family? Are the names of history derivatives of the name of the father? And are the races, cultures, and continents substitutes for daddy-mommy, dependent on the Oedipal genealogy? Is history's signifier the dead father? I'm just going to continue because they're asking questions. I just want to get to the answers. Once again, let us consider Judge Schreber's delirium. To be sure, the use of races and the mobilization or notion of history are developed there in a manner totally different from that employed by the authors we have previously mentioned. The fact remains that Schreber's memoirs are filled with a theory of God's chosen peoples, and with the dangers that face the currently chosen people, the Germans, who are threatened by the Jews, the Catholics, and the Slavs. In his intense metamorphoses and passages, Schreber becomes a pupil of the Jesuits, the burgomaster of a city where the Germans are fighting against the Slavs, and a girl defending Alsace against the French. At last, he crosses the Aryan gradient or threshold to become a Mongol prince. What does this becoming pupil, burgomaster, girl, and Mongol signify? All paranoiac deliriums stir up similar historical, geographic, and racial masses. The error would lie in concluding, for example, that fascists are mere paranoiacs. This would be an error precisely because, in the current state of affairs, this would still amount to leading the historical and political content of the delirium back to an internal familial determination. And what is even more disturbing to us is the fact that the entirety of this enormous content disappears completely from Freud's analysis. Not one trace of it remains. Everything is ground, squashed, triangulated into Oedipus. Everything is reduced to the father in such a way as to reveal in the crudest fashion the inadequacies of an Oedipal psychoanalysis. Hey, look, you have all these things that you kind of believe in all this stuff and uh, they're really into. Hey, all of it's the dad. Oh, all of it's the father. Okay, well, that, that kind of flat. Okay, bye. Like, it's kind of like that. Uh, Webcam Parrot, did you jump in? Yeah, I was just going to say, I feel like that that passage is, uh, is pretty clear, right? Like, they're saying, look at all these other things going on. Historical, geographic, racial, you know, there's all these other things being mixed up. And yet, it still all gets squashed into Oedipus. Mm -hmm. it's a, the big thing also, uh, because it's worth, uh, if you've seen other people do YouTube videos on, on this book, uh, one of the lines in here that kind of is important to take is uh, the mistake would be saying that fascists are mere paranoiacs. No, no. Uh, it's an error because in the current state of affairs, this amounts to leading all historical political content of delirium back to family determinations. Uh, we do not want to, even those we do not like and people we do not feel pity for, we still don't believe and we do not take the idea that the unconscious for some is 
fully Oedipalized and that all of this results just purely into a way that a man needs to deal with his father and how to write himself in a triangle. Uh, this is everything for everyone, even shitty human beings like fascists. Everything uh, is different and difficult and grown out and forcing any of it back into an Oedipalization by simply saying, oh, the fascists are simply paranoiacs, uh, misses the whole point uh, because that Oedipalizes them. So just saying. Not that I still have an anger around a YouTube video. That's never going to fucking go away. <sighs> Any comments, questions? Well, I'm really glad you reread that passage because I wanted to just say on top of what you said, right? It's also to understand that fascism in this sense has a process of production, right? And that the, what's going on with fascism is not simply just like, is not simply just a paranoiac process. Uh, let's uh, continue because they get into the paranoiac delirium here pretty quick. Let us consider another paranoiac delirium as related by Maud Minoni, a delirium whose political nature is especially vivid. This example appears all the more striking to us, given our great admiration for Maud Minoni's work and for the manner in which she poses anti-psychiatric and institutional problems. Here, then, we see a man from Martinique who, in the process of his delirium, situates himself in relation to the Arabs and the Algerian War, in relation to the Whites and the May 68 events, and so on. Quote, I fell sick from the Algerian problem. I had partaken in the same foolishness as they, sexual pleasure. They adopted me as one of their own race. Mongol blood flows through my veins. Every time I attempted to put something into effect, the Algerians argued against it. I had racist notions. I descend from the Gaelic dynasty. Totally not pronouncing that right. But this right, by this right, I am a man of noble lineage. Let my name be determined. Let it be determined scientifically, and then I shall be able to set up a harem. End quote. Though aware of the character of revolt and of truth for all implied in the psychosis, Maud Minoni argues that the origin of the breakup of familial relations in favor of themes that the subject himself declares to be racist, metaphysical, and political is to be found in the familial structure serving as a matrix. This origin would exist, therefore, in the symbolic void, or in... Quote, the initial foreclosure of the signifier of the father, end quote. The name to be determined scientifically, the name that haunts all history, is simply the paternal name. Uh, and they continue because it's, they're about to say the critique. In this case, and in many others, the utilization of the Lacanian concept of foreclosure leads to the forced Oedipalization of the rebel. The absence of Oedipus is interpreted as a lack with regard to the father, a gaping hole in the structure. Next, in the name of this lack, we are referred to the other Oedipal pole, the pole of imaginary identifications within the maternal undifferentiated. The law of the double bind operates relentlessly, ruthlessly, flinging us from one pole to the other in such a way that what is foreclosed in the symbolic must reappear in the real in a hallucinatory form. But in this fashion, the entire historical-political theme gets interpreted as a constellation of imagery, imaginary identifications, depending on Oedipus, or on that which the subject lacks in order to become Oedipalized. I'll read the footnote in a moment. Actually, I'll read the footnote now. 
The Oedipal personages are all in their places, but in the play of permutations brought about, there is something like an empty place. What appears as rejected is everything, referring to the phallus and the father. Each time George tries to take hold of himself as a desiring person, he is driven back to a form of dissolution of identities. He is another, enthralled by a maternal image. He remains trapped within an imaginary position in which he is captivated by the maternal imago. imago. He situates himself within the Oedipal Triangle in terms of this locale, which implies an impossible process of identification, involving forever after, in the mode of pure imaginary dialectic, the destruction of one or the other of the partners. It's uh, Manoni's case notes uh, that they were just discussing. And to be sure, it is not a question of knowing whether or not the familial determinations or indeterminations play a role. It's obvious that they do. But is this an initial role as a symbolic organizer or symbolic disorganizer from which the floating contents of the historical delirium would derive as so many glittering reflections in an imaginary mirror? Is the trinitary formula for the schizo, which leads him forced and constrained back to Oedipus, this void left by the absence of the father and this cancerous development of the mother and the sister? And yet, as we have seen, if there is one problem that does not exist in schizophrenia, it is the problem of identifications. And if getting well amounts to getting oedipalized, we can easily understand the outbursts of the patient who does not want to be cured and who treats the analyst as one of the family, then as an ally of the police. It is the schizophrenic sick and cut off from reality because he lacks Oedipus, because he is lacking in something only found in Oedipus, or on the contrary, is he sick by virtue of the Oedipalization he is unable to bear, and around which everything combines in order to force him to submit? Social repression, even before psychoanalysis? So, uh, take a crack at this. Uh, I, I overall think that these paragraphs are actually very clear. If you have questions about any phrasing or anything, do let me know. Uh, they are going through a very specific case of a, of a man who was schizophrenic, diagnosed by Mob Manoni, who was supposedly anti-psychiatric. I believe Manoni really pushed that movement in general. Um, the way that she uh, went about uh, her diagnosis of this guy was basically saying, uh, basically fully Oedipalizing and returning them to the place as a schizophrenic of someone who everything derives from this harsh symbolization. Uh, she would see that the Oedipalization comes first and from uh, the father. He has these fucked up foreclosures on the signifiers from the mother. This is being produced this way, that. And their response is, look, again, uh, as uh, Webcam Parrot just said, uh, this is them expanding on the idea that, hey, there's actually a lot more happening here. And, well, the parents are obviously involved. I mean, yeah, like, they're, they're not going to say that parents don't affect us. That would be absurd. But they're saying the symbolization and the determination of the triangulation. It's a lot of Asians. Let me try to say it a different way. Uh, rather than assigning everything to a handful of symbols and forcing things into those very narrow tracts and crushing them into what it means to be part of that symbol, their argument is we need to look at where they are and we need to look at what those signifiers actually come from. 
rather than saying that they need to be pushed into being daddy, mommy, or me. Yeah, I mean, not only is, is the Oedipal like the your parents not the only thing, they're not even really the most important thing, really. Um, like, are we going to sit here and say that, you know, parenting has just as much of an impact as the culture that you're within? The, like the context of the of even uh, where you begin to even formulate any sort of uh, a feeling on something. Yeah, I can try. Um, so uh, there's repression, foreclosure, and disavow, and they're all three ways of dealing with <clears throat> um, Oedipus, I guess. Um, and foreclosure is the, uh, foreclosure is the psychotic solution. And, uh, apparently this solution stops working whenever the psychotically structured subject is met with an injunction of authority that it, um, that it, can and it cannot refuse uh the rules of the game given by this injunction of authority um uh but i mean we were talking about this last night the major the big difference here between psychoanalysis and uh schizoanalysis is uh is desire i mean their notions of desire are just completely different um and uh and this and excitation too so this this intensity this, these affective affectivities um are also dealt with com completely different so for psychoanalysis um you there's there's need demand and desire um so needs are physiological and they aren't captured by language yet. Whenever the baby learns how to uh, play with language and articulate their needs, they become demands. Um, because the idea is that there's a bit of this physiological excitation that cannot be articulated by language. But this isn't, I guess, known yet. And then desire comes in as the solution to this impossible demand problem. Um, whereas desire is almost the... Uh, it seems like for Deleuze Water, desire is the whole kit and caboodle. It's not something that comes after a, a process of alienation and separation. And that this excess excitation, it cannot be articulated by language is imminent and is reinstantiated in each uh, movement of the subject through these bodies. Um, whereas for psychoanalysis, it's this lost thing that was never had to begin with because the only thing that, well, at least for Lacan, the only thing that exists is, the only thing that you can even point at uh, is language. Um, like, like Lacan would kick people out of the his school for talking about pre-Oedipal stuff because um, he just didn't believe in it. Um, so yeah, what do you what do you do with that uh, that unarticulatable 
bit of of affectivity of intensity is where I think this line is drawn, and Deleuze and Guattari seem to really place a lot of importance on this, whereas Lacan turns it into this impossible jouissance that that break that breaks this rule of the second paralogism where desire is uh is predicated on law that for this excess excitation to uh even be instantiated at all there has to be a limit that can be broken um and that and that is this transgressive movement of jouissance pleasure and pain the death drive and all that stuff and i side with Deleuze and Guattari here because i like young more than i like lacan and uh Young's idea of the unconscious is much closer to Deleuze and Guattari's, where there's this, there's uh, all these globules of intensity on a uh, on a single sided surface, and an inside and an outside is only produced by representation. Um, and what's attached to these globules of excitation that are a representable are signs. And and this is what directs, uh, not really directs, but uh, outside of the sphere of novelty, um, in the repetition of sameness, not of difference, what directs these excitations are the signs that are associated just by simultaneity with these affections. So, yeah. That's great. So. For those of you wondering if we were going to get back to that question on page 88, what forces the schizophrenic to withdraw to a body without organs that has become deaf, dumb, and blind? Thank you, Ken, for answering that question. All right, and I will continue to the next uh, uh, paragraph. Uh, this is going to be a, as I said in the chat, if you didn't see, uh, this is going to uh, kind of end around 2 o'clock. And we will continue the reading next week. Uh, we are going to start getting into sections of this book that are longer than a two-hour reading. Be ready for that. Uh, this is where it starts. And this is one of the shorter of those. <clears throat> the schizophrenic egg is like the biological egg. They have a similar history, and our knowledge of them has run up against the same sort of difficulties and illusions. During the development of the differentiation of the egg, it was first believed that veritable organizers decided the destiny of the parts. But it was soon noticed that on the one hand, all kinds of other variable substances had the same action as the envisaged organizing stimulus, and that on the other hand, the parts themselves had specific abilities and potentials for development that did not exist for the stimulus. Experiments with grafting. Whence the idea that the stimuli are not organizers, but mere inductors, Ultimately, the nature of these inductors is a matter of indifference. Many different kinds of substances and materials, when killed, boiled, and pulverized, have the same effect. It was the beginnings of the development that favored the illusion, the simplicity of the beginning, consisting, for example, of cellular divisions, could lead to one to believe in some sort of adequation between the inductor and what is being induced. But... We are well aware that, when considered in terms of its beginnings, a thing is always poorly judged because, in order to become apparent, it is forced to simulate structural states and to slip into states of forces that serve it as masks. What is more, from the beginning, we can see that it makes use of masks in an entirely different manner. 
and that underneath the mask and by means of it, it already invests the terminal forms in specific higher states whose integrity it will subsequently establish. So is that a call out to drive? With the masks? This is this is a thing. Uh, we, we had conversations around this last time. And for me, I think um, I started seeing it as more them making reference to Frantz Fanon uh, and some of his work and how uh, the the I, the way that masks operate inside of our unconscious and the way we handle that ish um but i think drives is probably m at least a significant part of it like this is it's literally the same discussion we had like what seven months ago six months ago now um i don't think we didn't have an answer does anyone want to take a stab at that i nominate gun <laughs> Let's let's break it down. Uh, during the development of the differentiation of the egg, it was first believed that veritable organizers decided the destiny of the parts. Uh, the uh, they're talking here about the biological egg. Uh, they are talking about it uh, not as allegory, but kind of as allegory here, which makes this confusing and difficult. Uh, poetic too, but confusing and difficult. Uh, the original idea of how the egg came about is we thought that there were like, they believed that there were parts of the bodies that essentially assembled like the opening scene of Westworld that assembled things in the correct place and decided the destiny of the parts we knew beforehand. Um, but then uh, at some point it was noticed as they say, all kinds of other variable substances had the same action envisaging organizing stimulus. And on the other hand, the parts themselves had specific abilities and potential for development that did not exist for the stimulus. Uh, the the ability for a stimulant, like it just became this thing where it's like, well, obviously these machines aren't making these other secondary things. Like how, how is this being produced? How's an egg being made? How is a chicken leg or a chicken beak or a neck or whatever being made? Um, so they went, oh, well, maybe they're not organizers, but inductors. Uh, and uh, at that point, it's like, okay, well, that, the many different kinds of substances and materials when killed, boiled, and pulverized have the same effect. Uh, the simplicity of the beginning consisting, for example, of cellular divisions could lead one to believe in a sort of adequation between inductor and what is induced. Um, the nature of how the egg becomes and grows, uh, we can assume to be something that is determinate, uh, say, edipalized, where we say it's, it's being structured X, Y, and Z. But at the same time, when we start actually looking at uh, the way that the inductors work, and the way that they're set up from the beginning, we can see that it makes use of mass in a different manner underneath the mask. And by means of it, it already invests terminal forms in specific higher states whose integrity it will subsequently establish. The eminence of the creation of the egg as it develops the chick inside the eminence of the creation within the egg of the BWO as the subject is produced, uh, invests in those end forms, the drives, the terminal, uh, forms of specific higher states that it will subsequently establish. It's already investing in that. It's Yeah, so we're trying to figure out how do we get an egg, right? So it, it, I'm going to kind of read it backwards, right? What is more from the beginning, we can see that it makes use of mass. And in, I'm sorry, but we are well aware that when considered in terms of its beginnings, a thing is always poorly judged because in order to become apparent, 
it is forced to simulate structural states and to slip into states of forces that serve it as mass. So we're talking here about how the biological egg, right? There's a conceptuality that forces a simulation, kind of masking what's going on. And then there's right the other uh, use of subjectivity we've seen, which is where the simulation happens a bit differently. So already we're starting to see that that movement of the two uses of the synthesis. Yeah, and uh, again, they're sort of juxtaposing it against uh, Oedipus being determinate formations, where the the shape of what the egg needs to be is already set up from the beginning. Um, it's not that it's set up or being built as it goes based on a handful of symbols, sort of. Um, Instead, so they use mass. To quote, uh, Ken has a great passage on Deleuze previously talking about mass and uh, difference in repetition. Uh, I think it's, it's worth reading just quickly. Uh, death has nothing to do with a material model. On the contrary, the death instinct may be understood in relation to mass and costumes. Repetition is truly that which disguises itself in constituting itself, that which constitutes itself only by disguising itself. It is not underneath the masks, but is formed from one mask to another, as though from one distinctive point to another, from one privileged instant to another, with and within variations. The masks do not hide anything except other masks. There is no first term which is repeated. There is no bare repetition which may be abstracted or inferred from the disguise itself. The same thing is both disguised and disguising. A decisive moment in psychoanalysis occurred when Freud gave up, in certain respects, the hypothesis of real childhood events, which would have played the part of ultimate disguised terms in order to substitute the power of fantasy, which is immersed in the death instinct, where everything is already masked and disguised. In short, repetition is, in its essence, symbolic. Symbols are simulacra, the letter of repetition to itself, differences including repetition or to symbol. Um, the masks part here, to go back a little bit longer, um, where he talks about, where they write about the uh, uh, thing we were talking about before, not the either or, but the uh, there is uh, no, the schizo pretending to be blank, pretending to be blank, pretending to be blank. It's Brooks pretending to be a podcast host, pretending to be a philosopher, pretending to be someone who's confident, pretending there's no Brooks though. There's no, there's no floor of those masks is what he's saying here. And this is, I think the reference that he's making here with the masks from the beginning, we can see it makes use of masks in a different manner that underneath the mask and by means of the mask, it already invests in terminal forms. The, the, the end of it is built into the beginning. Uh, Try not to get into circular ego uh, yet, but there is a end is built into the beginning argument for how masks operate, that there is no bottom, uh, that it's an uruburus uh, of masks, effectively. I mean, you've got the mass hiding, right, the mass in terms of the simulation that obfuscates the simulation of the third um, syllogism, right? Such is the history of Oedipus. The parental figures are in no way organizers, but rather inductors or stimuli of varying vague import that trigger processes of an entirely different nature, processes that are endowed with what amounts to an indifference with regard to the stimulus. Doubtless one can believe that in the beginning, question mark, I think they're meaning that more sarcastically, the stimulus, the Oedipal inductor, is a real organizer. 
But believing is an operation of a conscious or pre-conscious nature, an extrinsic perception rather than an operation of the unconscious upon itself. From the beginning of the life of the child, it is already an altogether different undertaking that pierces the mask of Oedipus, a different flow running through the openings in the mask, a different adventure, that of desiring production. Yet it cannot be said that psychoanalysis was aware of this in a certain respect. In his theory of the primal fantasy, of the traces of an archaic heredity, and the endogenous sources of the superego, Freud constantly asserts that the active factors are not the real parents, nor even the parents as the child imagines them. Such is also the case, and also more so, for Lacan's disciples, when they take up the distinction between the imaginary and the symbolic, when they oppose the name of the father to the imago, and the foreclosure concerning the signifier to a real deficiency or absence of the person, paternal personages. There is no better example than this to show that the parental figures are indifferent inductors, and that the true organizer is elsewhere, on the side of what is induced, not on that of the inductor. Continuing the same argument, uh, again, against the idea that Oedipus is determinate. Uh, uh, parental figures? Uh, I affect my son. There is no question of that. Uh, but I do not organize his understanding of the world. I am a stimulus, just like everything else from Sesame Street to all of it, but I do not organize it based on my interactions with him or how I teach him to interact with me. Uh, those are parts of why he becomes who he does, but it's not the organizing factor. It's an inductor. Is that close enough for government work? For government work. Well, always for government work, right? Always. Well, I mean, we're all getting $1,400 checks, so we're all employees of the government. Yeah, it turns out even Freud was after that stimulus, right? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you're you're really on to it because, right, like, they're even, Deleuze and Guad are even taking the pains to point out that even Lacan's disciples and Freud admit that there's more to it than this, right? That the one or the other aspect of, like, the chicken or the egg problem, which is kind of what they're talking about here is it's kind of the chicken or the egg in terms of the biological egg. They'll expand on this in chapter four more directly. Right, like it, it's you don't even have to really have that choice. With that, I'll move to. I think it's going to be the last. Oh, we'll maybe do one or two more, um, and we'll because we start a little late. But that is just the beginning of the question. The same question as in the case of the biological egg. For under these conditions, is there no solution but to revive the notion of a terrain, whether in the form of a phylogenetic innateness of preformation, or a cultural symbolic a priori linked to prematuration? Worse yet, it is clear that by invoking such an a priori, one does not by any means abandon familialism in the strictest sense, which burdens all of psychoanalysis. No, on the contrary, one thereby plunges deeper into familialism and generalizes it. Parents have been put in their true places within the workings of the unconscious as inductors of an indifferent nature, Yet the role of organizer continues to be entrusted to symbolic or structural elements that are still part of the family and its Oedipal matrix. Once again, one is caught without a way out. It is simply that the means have been found to render the family transcendent. That may be actually where I want to end it, because it's about to get into further critique and issues. Um, I, we'll stop and let's have a discussion so far of what they're talking about, if anyone needs it. Uh, 
Uh, if anyone wants questions or a short version, uh, essentially so far they've gone over the nature of how uh, the intensities and emotions are produced, what they create, and how Oedipus is actually not uh, the formation, that instead it is how these desiring machines function uh, and their output effectively uh, that ends up creating the emotions that we believe are us. Uh, we'll get into a little bit more into that, but that's kind of been so far just a huge critique of uh, Oedipus as a determinate uh, belief. I'm I'm happy to sit awkwardly. Don't worry, I'm very happy to sit awkwardly. I mean, it's entirely possible if you guys have uh, uh, no no questions, no comments yet. Understood. We're going to be getting into. I think we might be able to finish the rest of this. Uh, let's see, it's eighty three. Uh, nope, we're not going to finish this next week, probably. But hey, who knows? Um, it's ninety three. Yeah, we may be able to finish this next week. Uh, I'll pose a question. Yep, go for it. Ken, what is the relationship between foreclosure and something like S1? The master signifier? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I might be out of my depth. Um, uh, so the the master signifier is self-referential. Um, it, it means nothing other like... Uh, the example, it it becomes meaningless. So if you've ever seen Blue Velvet, uh, there's that antagonist guy, uh, like the villain, the villain, the villain of the show, where he where he just says fuck a million times, Frank, and so fuck it it becomes absolutely meaningless. But at the same time, it is the uh, it, it fuck itself is not the master signifier, but the way that he's using it is the instantiation of the phallus. Um, and so he becomes like the Oedipal father or whatever to all his minions and everyone around him. He's, he's wielding the phallus and all this other stuff. Um, but it's actually uh, imposture. Like he, he lacks to or whatever is the idea. Um, in, in foreclosure, there... I mean, there almost is no master signifier. I was going to say, I, I isn't foreclosure. Well, so foreclosure is the is the removal of a signifier. So like, it's not foreclosure. I don't think is necessarily always in relation to the master signifier, but generally it is. Uh, in my readings, in my understanding of Lacan, that it's much more uh, the foreclosure of the master signifier is. Uh, I mean, this is psychosis. Like, this is seriously problematic. Uh, issue with Lacan. Uh, well, I mean, I don't mean problematic in that sense. I mean, like he sees it as a serious problem that you foreclose upon the master signifier. Therefore, you have no name of the father. You have no relations to that or the law. And it's what causes deep psychosis and problematic behavior commonly from, uh, let's say, uh, uh, single mothers. Uh, this is not me saying this. This is me sort of relating Lacan's writing that I remember. Um, single mothers who don't uh, show deference to the law would be one that would raise a child who forecloses the name of the father. Uh, you know, I don't quite know about that. That's not the sense that I got from seminar, but I can, I can sort of see that. Uh, but so what, 
causes psychosis is not is not this foreclosure of of the signifier of the lack and the other um it is the floating authority and then the contact with that the the name of the father helps one to deal with authority and so then it's brushing up on a set of rules that um you never had space for to begin with that precipitates a psychotic break you can just be a, a totally so-called normal person uh and then all of a sudden you brush up against a a person who's who's like wielding their authority against you and suggesting who you are and what you are to do and what you should do and what your true self is. And then this causes the psychotic break. Um, but, uh, but, uh, you know, middle air later comes up with this idea of, uh, ordinary psychosis, um, which, which, uh, articulates that issue, but I, I don't quite know how that works. Um, because they they still have a signifying chain of sorts is the idea, um, but it's just it can slip at any time. So psychosis is the reshaping of signifiers, and so I I think that the implication with foreclosure on the master signifier would not would be that essentially there's no master signifier in what we know, but instead of misshapen one, and that's the cause mm-hmm. of psychosis. Uh, like for foreclosure is the expelling of the thing like the out mm-hmm. out goes that sign boo boo but it's not like it doesn't get replaced it does and that's the cause of psychosis again uh and i i'm not someone who has a super good understanding i dove deep into a handful of things as zizek talked about it and this was one of them because again zizek doesn't have clean hands on a handful of lacanian stuff but i'm pretty sure my example despite it being really shitty is one that specifically lacan talked about I need to, I'm no, I don't want to open a creeds. Every time I do, it makes my brain hurt, but, um, feels like that ish. Yeah. I might just be triggered by the example and wanting to wanting for it to not be the case. Yeah. And it was, so it was also from super early. I, 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 I copied some of the text from one of the things in like 1938 Lacan. Uh, this was before he actually even used the term foreclosure. I think he was using, Sorry, anyone who's German Austrian. Verwerfung? Freudian shit? It's Freudian word. Verwerfung? Something? Whatever. I'll copy and paste it. Verf. Whatever. It it sounds like foreclosure is in relation to the name of the father here, right? Particularly in your example, Brooks? Yes. And someone help me out here. What is it that S1 does again? The master signifier is what all other signifiers are referential of. Yeah, it's signification as such. And it has an important role, too, on top of that, right? Because it represents... You can't signify without it. So, yes, fairly important. And it represents the subject to the other signifiers, correct? Mm -hmm. The The signifier represents a subject for another signifier, yes. And that is S1, correct? 
Yes, uh, but S1 doesn't have to be the phallus. Right, because it's signifying the subject for the other signifiers. But mm -hmm. it, right? I think so. So if S1, well, let's walk this out here, right? So foreclosures in relation to the name of the father, and the name of the father is the distribution of law, so much so that you don't need the, the father physically, but right, you need the father in this larger sense, so as to have this distribution, right? We've moved into the second synthesis. If S1 represents the subject to other signifiers, we've now passed into the third synthesis, haven't we? Because now we're getting into the constitution of subjectivity. And more directly, you might see where this, this idea of mass as a simulation that kind of obfuscates a, a simulation of subjectivity, or the simulation that is subjectivity more precisely. Perhaps we can start to see and put together how these paralogisms and syllogisms affect one another. And Ken, I will say this is when we start getting down here as I'm reading stuff that Lacan like actual quotes. Uh, yeah, no, I'm getting defensive reading them so I can totally understand your response. Like, I'm like, there's no way he said this. And it's like, here's a source. I'm like, oh, you son of a bitch. Yeah, I want to abstract it out and just call it uh, the law of signification. But yeah, I mean, that's pretty plain. Mm -hmm. but, but focus on this for a minute, right? Because if subjectivity is moved into S1 as a representation, you, you can already see where this criticism is going to go, right? As, to, in, as far as a paralogism goes, yeah? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. And I think this comes from Lacan understanding everything in terms of negation, absence, lack, and loss, right? So for the, un, the unconscious for Lacanian psychoanalysis, this is the metaphor. You've got a, a frame with a picture that doesn't exist on a wall that doesn't exist with a nail that doesn't exist, that nails the frame to the wall. And that nail is the master signifier. And 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 so I, I think I see what you're getting at that that you're using a uh, a mask to suggest that that mask is the thing underneath another mask. Right, and this is all moving in terms of the of S one and S two, right? So we've got a way in which the subject being represented through a signifier to the other signifiers, right? This takes us out of subjectivity in relation to the celibate machine and what we've been talking about, right? And it takes us into an entirely different engagement, right? Where now the subject is represented altogether. I sort of missed that last bit. Is, how is the subject represented altogether? Uh, the subject is represented by us one to other signifiers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but that doesn't mean that the. I mean, it's so tricky. Um, I'm not going to get stuck in this rabbit hole. Yeah, I'll just agree with you. There'll be time as they as they go through the rest of this um this section. We'll see this come into more light. But because they've been, if you've been 
kind of paying attention are they're getting into use of signs and they're getting into use of signifiers and they've kind of been just pressing on the notion of signifier and signifier of the father here, the lack of uh, the law of the father. Mm-hmm. Right. So they're pressing on like the paralogistic use and Lacanian um, psychoanalysis. I'm just trying to highlight it right now without going too deep into it. Well, and with that, I'm going to go ahead and uh, end the stream and say thank all of you for joining us today. We will continue with uh, 2.5, 6, where are we? Whatever we're at. The conjunctive synthesis, uh, we will continue with it next week from page 92 uh, as we start diving into uh, more about Oedipus, but more discussing about how subjectivization occurs. So I want to say thank you for joining us, uh, and we hope to see you next week. Thanks, Brooks. Oh, this was great. This was great. I had a very good time. Hi, Jack, and everyone else. See, and you, you thought I was just picking on you to pick on you. <laughs> no. I only think you're doing that whenever you bring up Ted Cruz. <laughs> well, the the foreclosure thing Cruz. is the foreclosure thing is super interesting because I was pulling up. I had because again, uh, Ken, this this was I say last time. Like this is not some new discussion. I think we're making better headway for sure than we were last time. Um, but I still have some of my notes. Um, they aren't nearly as large, but um, I did go into a handful of things that accretes and a few others. And this is like...